Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you for truth that continues to set us free, Father. Thank you so much for loving us so much and just showering us with grace that, as your word states, surpasses all human comprehension, transcends it even. Thank you for giving us a glimpse of who and what you are and how much you love us through the work of your son on the cross 2,000 years ago. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, uh, the difficult passage is Grace and Works, Part 7. I'd like to begin this evening's message with a balanced statement, an awful lot of talk lately about, you know, the truth of the matter is that God saves. The truth of the matter is that God chooses, God elects, uh, and no one's saved unless God draws them to his son even. That's what scripture says. Um, but we have to reconcile that, not in a vacuum. We have to reconcile that with the fact, the simple fact that the Bible also speaks about man's free will. And so there's this sort of paradox, and I don't want you to get lopsided. I'm always cognizant of the fact that people um, may get lopsided. Uh, whenever there's sort of an emphasis in one area of Scripture, what people tend to do is they sort of just corral over there, right? It's like, and now it's like, oh, we're all, you know, we're all, unless God chooses us, we're all, you know. And then it's over here, back to man's free will, and it's, oh, you know, God's our little puppet. And we have to reconcile both. So let me give you this as a balance statement. I don't want anyone getting lopsided since we are on part seven of this series with a tremendous focus on the fact that God saves uh, and that it's part of his grace work. <clears throat> the paradox between God's choosing and election and man's free will ought never be a cause for consternation or confusion, rather a perfect time to exercise faith. It's, a, it's the perfect time. Uh, you, me, every other person, every other believer, every other so-called great theologian in history uh, has had to manage this paradox in their own souls, that um, it just is what it is, and it's a perfect time to exercise faith. If the Bible says that God chooses, and it's His sovereign choice to who He saves, then we have to believe it. If the Bible says we have a free will, then we have to believe that too. People have a tendency to get lopsided very quickly because of their own, for lack of a better term, laziness, frankly. But as a shepherd, part of my job is to realize this, whack the sheep, and say, essentially, wake up. Wake up. For example, when the Word of God states dogmatically that salvation is God's sovereign choice, and it is, that's what the Word says. Salvation is God's sovereign choice. And if I teach that plainly, as the Word instructs me to, what I don't want happening is that some of you get all lopsided, thinking that I'm teaching that man has, for lack of a better term, no bearing whatsoever in the course of God's plan for salvation. We know that's not true either. We know from Scripture that this cannot be true, that 
man has no bearing uh, in God's plan for salvation. For the commands to, think about it, the commands to repent, believe, and even have faith are directed at individuals. That's the paradox. These commands are directed at us as individuals. But the Bible also says that by the grace of God, God saves us. And He's the one who gives us repentance and faith that saves, etc. So how does that work? <laughs> Have a little faith. That's how it works. What else do you want me to say? That's exactly how it works. We have a free will, and God's sovereign choice saves us. What would you like me to say? If you have you know, issues with that in your soul, chances are you're spending too much time trying to rationalize it. Just have faith that it's true. We know from Scripture that those things cannot be true, that these things might operate in vacuums. For both of these things to be true, we must enter the realm of the supernatural. That's why it's called supernatural, because it's not natural. It's above natural. It's godly to accept these things on faith. So we must enter the realm of the supernatural, departing human rationalism altogether. So if you're trying to rationalize things, just stop it. And while doing that, we fully embrace all of it by faith. Again, the point on the board. As a balance statement, the paradox between God's choosing and election and man's free will ought never be a cause for consternation or confusion. Rather, a perfect time to exercise faith. Here's another thought I had, almost orthogonal, but while listening to Tuesday's lesson, great job, by the way, Scott. Who's God being patient with? <clears throat> That's a funny question, isn't it? We talk about God's patience, and we take this vantage point that, you know, it's always somebody else he's being patient with. I mean, when it comes to salvation. How much of God's divine patience is exercised waiting for those who already proclaim to be believers yet are actually clinging to a false gospel? Seriously. If salvation, now this is where a little synthesis happens. You may or may not get what I'm getting at here, but take it with you. If salvation were by man's sovereign choice, why would God describe himself as patient? Wouldn't man just be able to decide, you know, mm -hmm. of course I want heaven. Give me heaven. I'll take it. <laughs> I mean, who's not going to choose heaven? But yet, God portrays himself and describes himself in Scripture as being incredibly patient. Who's to say what portion of that patience is exercised towards people that think they're saved, but they're not? I have people in my own life that if I ask them if they believe, they'd say absolutely. But they're from a denomination that is completely lost. And so it really makes me wonder, is God being patient with them? Looking back on your own salvation understanding what you now do, and I'm assuming you're all saved here when I say these things, ask this question to yourselves. Who do you believe opened your eyes to the gospel? You or God? Here's a hint. You were born in complete darkness, and there was no way out. So who do you think 
opened, the, opened your eyes to the gospel, you or God? Was it your work? Was it your inclination even to do so? Or did God draw you somehow? Did God reveal something? Did he shine light in you somehow at the right time? That's a fair question to ask yourself. And the more you understand that kind of a thing about yourself introspectively, the more you'll understand what the Spirit's been saying from the pulpit. I want to read a lengthy passage of Scripture with you, and I was wondering when we'd get around to it. Honestly, it's been months since I thought we'd get around to it. It's a lengthy passage of Scripture, but uh, obviously the Spirit wanted to build this lens that we've got right now in Part 7 of this series, Grace and Works, so that when we read it, we would, this lens would be sort of fresh. As we read this passage, I want you to think about the point on the board up here. Ephesians 1 and 2. Just keep this in mind as we read it. You must understand God's grace and what it includes at salvation in Ephesians 1 through 2-7 before you will understand the fullness of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. A lot of people jump right to 2, 8, and 9. They say, see, see how simple this is just this forensic, judicial-type thing, all about some gavel. And uh, that's not true, my friends. It's just not true. You must understand God's grace and what it includes at salvation. And so much, as we're going to see in Scripture, occurs in this... I mean, this is a mag- I mean, Ephesians is magnificent. So much occurs before Ephesians 2, 8, 9 even shows up. Ephesians 8, 9, it's like anything, was sort of something that was midstream in Paul's dissertation to the church. It was midstream, so you can't just start right there and end a verse later and say, see, this is the secret to salvation, because it's not the secret to salvation. Is it a part of salvation? Absolutely. Is it tremendously telling? Absolutely. But if it was all telling, we would only need those two verses, right? But we don't. So you must understand God's grace, all of it, and what it includes at salvation before you will understand the fullness of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. God is not only just and righteous, He is holy. I was telling DJ this um, today or yesterday. And uh, this word holy has been on my heart in such a big way. It's immense. Um, He's holy. Think about that. It's a hard word to, to, you can't put it in, you actually, you can't actually quantify it because him being holy means he's infinitely righteous and perfect and separate from anything that's not like him. Does that make sense? It's incredible. I mean, he's holy. We don't have a chance. I mean, when we're born in sin, think about that. We're completely, infinitely away from him. So it makes total sense that this holy God has to do all the work to reconcile us to him. And there's nothing we could do. There's not a prayer in the world we could do. Too many people focus solely on certain attributes rather than his essence, his person. I need you to think about that 
and go to Ephesians 1.1. 1, 1. We'll, we'll go through this quickly because I don't want to lose sight of the big picture. Like I alluded to earlier, this, I mean, this, this book is overwhelmingly impregnated with so many doctrines and so many wonderful things to think about. But I need you to focus on the lens we're on, grace and works, and how as we're approaching works as a topic, you notice how much time we're spending on grace. Because it's obvious once you go through this exercise that if you get grace right, then this works is just natural. Like works is just, a, of course. So you've got to get grace right. Ephesians 1.1, 1, 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as, and we saw this this past week, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. That's where we got our facts on it's His sovereign will to choose those who He saved. It's not man, it's not man's choice, so to speak. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, don't forget that. In love, He predestined us. This is His motivation in view now. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace. Notice that all glory funnels back to God, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. In other words, everything went through, goes through the Son, our Lord and Savior, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. That's another big statement. If man were responsible for any part of God's plan for salvation, then Ephesians 1.11 couldn't hold true. If man were responsible for any part of God's plan for salvation, then Ephesians 1.11 couldn't hold true all things would no longer be only God's will, but would include man somehow. Verse 12, To, that, to the end that we uh, who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory in Him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. And there you go again, to the praise of His glory. Do you see this sort of rocking horse? He gives grace, He gets glory. He gives grace, He gets glory. 
He gives grace. He gets glory. Verse 15, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, these are what we would call proper as fruit of salvation. Again, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you uh, while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. Verse 18 is magnanimous as well. If you want to think about, listen, if you want to think about something, you want to still use that phrase spiritual maturity, that's fine. But if you want to tie it to a verse, there's a good place to start. Verse 18. How many of us still need enlightenment on the magnitude of the gospel itself? If you want to talk about spiritual maturity, that's where it starts, with the gospel. Growing up in the gospel, it's that simple. That was another conversation I had today as well, how so much of our work in growing up is subtractive not necessarily additive. Uh, it's like man to say, well, if I'm going to get you know, bigger and better and more puffed up, I've got to add. But God wants lowliness in form, so to speak. So he wants to chop away a lot of things. So I don't know about you, but in my own experience, so much of my own maturity is really about losing self. Continuing to, to lose <laughs> what I thought was mine maybe even, what I sort of have white-knuckled to for years, and so much of that good work, it's not what we think. It's not about being added unto. I mean, we are being added unto, but it's a lot of it to get there is subtractive. There's a lot of work about taking away these things. So he says this in verse 18, and that's what he's talking about. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. These are, and we're going to get to that word surpassing in a moment, these are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ, when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And this is where it gets more poignant for our lessons as of late. And you were dead. That's the Greek word nekros. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's your starting state. That's how you were born. You were dead. So up here on the board, let me give you some insight onto that. Dead in your trespasses and sins, what, <laughs> what Paul is reminding us of is that we shouldn't have any hope whatsoever without God. We're literally, as the Bible says, helpless, hopeless even, without Him. What are we going to do? He's holy. We're born over here, infinitely away from Him. 
That's what spiritual death is, separation from God. We're born totally separate from God, alienated from a holy, the holy God. No chance of getting there unless he chooses to save us. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead up here on the board refers to spiritual death, complete separation from the light. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, Romans 5, 6. Think of it this way. A dead creature cannot reconcile themselves to the holy God of the universe. Okay? Now, I hate to be graphic. Some of you are probably going to chuckle. but So Buffy, your pet, I'm not going to name it so it doesn't get too, you know, gets run over. You let it out of the house and it gets run over. And it's a sad day and they're dead in the street. Um, are they ever going to get up and come to you? Why not? They're dead. Do you understand? They're dead as a doornail. Dead. You're dead. You're dead. You don't get to, you don't come alive unless God, quote, animates you. Reanimates you, if you want to say, you know, reborn, born again. Unless God does the work. That's the only way. Dead things don't reconcile to other <laughs> creatures. That's a good visual, because literally that's who you are. You're dead, flat dead. You don't, you're not going to, you can't get to him, because dead things don't move. Dead things are dead. So a dead creature cannot reconcile themselves to the holy God of the universe. Again, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Complete standstill, in other words. You're dead. Necros. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit. You see all, this, you see all these words that ring dominion? According to the prince of the power of the air? This is the dominion of spiritual death. This is what I've been saying. Spiritual death, the dominion of sin in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly, formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. In other words, you live, so to speak, in that dominion. You abide in that dominion. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, you see this? We're going to get to this later on as well. By nature, and this is why it's not just a gavel situation. It's not just Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, folks. By nature, you were dead. Your very nature. Not a judicial, not like an accountant or a judge or anything like that. Not just by the standards of accounting were you dead. Oh, they have no pulse. They're dead. Yeah, but what does that mean? Uncle Jimmy's dead. Is it just that he doesn't have a pulse and he can't get out of his bed anymore? Is that it? No. Uncle Jimmy's gone. There's a big difference between saying Uncle Jimmy's dead and doesn't have a pulse and Uncle Jimmy's dead and gone. Those are two different concepts completely. And that's what the Spirit's been working out. You're born your very nature is as a child of wrath, even as the rest. 
up here on the board. By nature, children of wrath, the very nature of the unsaved is unholy, living in the lusts of their flesh, Ephesians 2, 3, as opposed to the saved who have been given a new nature. That's the difference. Old nature, new nature. 2 Peter 1, 4. This is wholly consistent with being dead in their trespasses and sins, which is what we saw in Ephesians 2.1. Let me give you 2 Peter 1.4 up here. For by these he had granted to us as precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. This is a nature game, not just some judicial thing. It's about our natures even, our very nature. We were born as children of wrath. And God, it's up to God to give us a new nature. Again, verse 3. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature... Children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, this is the great motivation for grace, even when we were dead in our transgressions, dead, flat, inanimate, unable, dead, helpless, hopeless, dead, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive, who did? He did. Did he just bring a gavel down? No. Is that the gospel? No. Does that happen? Yeah. Is that the gospel? Not all of it. He makes you alive. He makes you alive. You don't just get, you don't just receive imputed righteousness. Many of us know the theology. Of course that's true. But there's so much more to his grace. You were dead, and he made you alive. He didn't just say, you can have my purchase perfect righteousness, and now I won't count any trespasses against you anymore. Does that happen? Absolutely. Thank God. But you were dead, and now you're alive in Christ. <laughs> I mean, that's a, those are worlds apart. And that's what the Spirit's trying to teach us here. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And again, don't just think of being saved as some, you know, some ancient artifact in your own life. Well, saved in 1972, and that's when it happened, and that's my salvation. No. What is the, the Spirit's been teaching us what salvation is? He actually has saved us from the sovereignty of sin. He saves us daily. Does that not ring a bell? Think about it up here on the board. Even when dead, made us alive. This means that being born spiritually dead precludes any man from saving himself or contributing anything righteous to the equation. It's impossible, in other words. You're dead. God's grace includes all aspects of salvation. So think of it that way. It's totally righteous to think this way. Any aspect, anything you can possibly think about that would move you from this position that you were born in, dead, 
So being alive in Christ has to be a gift from God. Not a, not a work of man. All of it. Think about it. Be- believing, faith, repentance, all of it. All of it. Imputed righteousness, all of it. Again, God's grace includes all aspects of salvation, including the call to repentance and saving faith, two sides of the same coin. Again, verse 5, Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace, in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Think about that for a moment. Paul's essentially writing to the Ephesians. In times, in the future, in the future, because you don't even, you don't even get it yet. There's going to be things we're going to still learn in heaven. I hope you know that. A lot of things. This is the surpassing riches of His grace. You know what? That's that Hooper Balo I alluded to it earlier up here on the board. Surpassing. It's used frequently by Paul in this passage. From Hooper Balo, it means to surpass, exceed, transcend. Transcend. Rise above. Beyond human comprehension. Supernatural. Transcend. In context, refers to God's grace performing works in man that even believers cannot fully understand yet. I mean, who can, under, can you really understand? If, if you could understand everything that he's talking about, then it wouldn't be Hooper Ballo. Do you get it? It's surpassing. It's beyond you. It's beyond you. And that's okay. It transcends your abilities. And that's okay because that's where faith comes in, right? And that's why we rejoice that He also gave us faith to trust Him. He gives us that too. Isn't that wonderful? He says, you can trust me. I'm going to give you faith. You may get rocky from time to time, so don't be down on yourself. Don't say, I never have perfect faith. Who does? Because we still have the old man. But you should look at it this way. So that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace. In other words, We don't even know all that he's done. We're still learning. This is what I was trying to say earlier about what it means to grow up, what what spiritual maturity really means. It means we learn more and more about how much he's done for us at salvation, how much he does for us as he saves us even daily. And the equation is not difficult, is it? It's not hard to say, oh, well, I get it. I mean, fundamentally, I was over here. I was born here. And now I'm here. So like looking at it that way is really simple. But then why not of us why aren't all of us like super geniuses when it comes to the work? Why do why do we flip over and stumble and you know get down and you know we're like, oh man, I'm having a bad day. What does that even mean? Why do you have any bad days? Because you don't understand it all yet. You don't have all the faith yet. You don't have everything ironed out yet. That's why he uses the word. Hooper Ballo, because I guess I suppose that if we had it all, we wouldn't be doing those things. We would have perfect faith like Jesus did, who never stumbled. 
which is a picture of us, guess where? In heaven, with our newly minted new creature. So think about that this evening as well. Hold your thumb also because we see these same words used in 2 Corinthians 3.10 and Ephesians 3.19. Hold your thumb, go to Ephesians 3.14 where we're going to see Hooper Ballo 3.14 just to drive the concept of surpassing home. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, there we go again with the granting, grace and then glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. I mean, who can say? That's that Greek word again. Hooperbalo. It surpasses, exceeds, transcends. I mean, who, who's going to sit here today and say they understand, they understood everything a year ago in terms of Christ's love for them that they do now? Anyone? That would be to say that you didn't grow. But how difficult of a concept is Christ's love? Really not. But yet, every one of us would agree that we understand it more today than even yesterday, certainly more than a year ago. That's what it means to grow up. You see these phrases, you know, in love, he predestined us. In love, he did this. In love, he did that. My great commandment for you is to love one another. We love because he first loved us. Why don't we just get it like that? Because it takes time. I mean, how, what are you going to say? It surpasses us. I mean, who can say, who can bottle God's love? Hooper Ballo. That's what it means. It's beyond our own comprehension. And that's cool. To me, it's exciting because that means forever and ever, if he's infinite, forever and ever, we don't magically become uh, omniscient in heaven. So that means forever and ever, since he's infinite, we get to rejoice in him. Sounds like a blast to me. Sounds like the unadulterated seeking of the word. Does it get any sweeter than that? Let's face it. What's sweeter, what's sweeter than that? Pick a day in the last month. What's sweeter than that one day you had when God was just draping himself over you and you were reading your Bible and you're like, you know what? This just doesn't get any better than this. Take that, multiply it by a bazillion and do that every day for all of eternity. And that's heaven. What's our problem then? If it was that, you know, if it was that wonderful, you're like, oh yeah, that day I had my I had my Starbucks and I was reading Ephesians and I was having such a great time. Well, why don't you do it every day, stupid? No, seriously. If it was that wonderful, why don't you do it every day? You'd be an idiot not to, right? Yeah, we're idiots. That's kind of the problem. Well, he has to subtract those things. We kind of showed up as idiots, right? We have this thing. Some of us are still holding on to it. Ephesians 3.19. And to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able 
to do far more abundantly beyond that Greek word for beyond hooper, hooper, kind of rounds with super, doesn't it? Beyond, it's a good way to remember it. Why is that funny? I rap on the side, sorry. Do far more abundantly beyond hooper all that we ask or think. Think about that. You can't even think of the ways that His grace is working for you and in you. You can't even think of it. Why? Because it surpasses knowledge. You don't have the, the faculties. How could you? Anybody want to try to draw what salvation looks like? I'm done drawing, by the way. How can you draw salvation? How do you draw any of this? How? How, how, do, you how do you encapsulate it? That's why, I, I, I mean, even, well, I, I guess I could come up with some, you know, take, I used to take Latin in high school, go back and refresh my Latin skills and start jamming like Latin roots together and make all these new theological multisyllabic words to really like impress people and say, ah, you know, it's this, this, no way. Because as soon as I do that and it's not actually part of the word of God, I've just somehow boxed them out. I don't want to do that anymore. I just want to, you know what? I just want to read this thing. I just want to read it and enjoy it. Come here and teach. We can fellowship together. We can learn new things together. We can grow together. We can love each other. But it's really this. We're all gathered around this thing. That's all I want to do. I don't want to invent any new things. Been there, done that. Thought it was the way to go, but it's not. It's actually really simple. Ephesians 3.20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory. There, you see it again? Grace, glory. Grace, glory. Grace, glory. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Up here on the board on that note. To him be the glory. God's plan for salvation brings glory to him. This means that all grace applied to man's account is to accommodate his glory, not man's. We are merely, as the Bible says, partakers of his divine glory, his divine nature even, as we'll see. We are partakers of his glory, though still very real to each believer. Another supernatural thing that who wants to just try to describe that thing? What does it mean to partake in his glory? I'm still learning. As Jesus stated, I am the vine, believers are the branches, John 15, 5. The Father is the vine dresser, John 15, 1. To him be the glory. In other words, you know, a branch doesn't survive without what? The vine. And then we have God the Father pruning, helping the whole thing grow. Remember, uh, Paul was planted, I watered, but God causes all the growth, so said Paul. To string all of this together, we might rightly say that when God chooses to save a person, he graces them out in every way possible, in every way mandated by his own integrity, by the way. Because even if you had one little sliver, you know, if you put one foot down, you know, if it was a walk over a bridge, whatever, you put one toe down just for a brief second and took one, like, you know, nanometer 
of a step, that would be you involved. That's not, that, that would be perfect then. It would be tainted. So we're really just along for the ride. When God chooses to save a person, He graces them out in every way possible, bringing glory to Himself. Grace, glory. We don't dishonor God until we try ourselves to do these things, to do works without Him, especially at salvation. I don't want all your grace. Just give me the free ticket. I'll talk to you later about this thing, this other thing. Back to where we get to one of the most famous passages of all, but before we read it, recall our opening principle up here on the board, Ephesians 1, 2. You must understand God's grace and what it includes at salvation in Ephesians 1 through 2, 7 before you will understand the fullness of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. God is not only just and righteous, He is holy. He's holy. Too many people focus solely on certain attributes rather than His essence, His person. In other words, it's a big mistake just to think that God's only, um, God's only work in salvation is to be able to satisfy His justice. That's lacking horribly in truth. Is His justice satisfied? Yeah, you might get fancy and say He's propitiated. So, you were dead. Now you're alive. You were dead. Now you're alive. You know, like the song Amazing Grace? That's why that song's timeless. Dead. Alive. You don't have to even understand all the judicial aspects of what goes on at salvation for Him to save you. Do you? How many of you can honestly say that you understood and clung to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 before you were even saved? Now, if you're truly saved, you said, I am a wretch and I need a Savior. And God said, perfect. Here we go. I'll tell you later what happens. Who's Paul writing to, by the way, here? Believers. Do you understand? I'll tell you later. Nothing wrong with having this scripture ready when we evangelize people. Of course it's real. That might be exactly what they need to hear. God only knows. To get them over. You know what I mean? Great. But that is certainly not the fullness of the gospel. I don't want you to think that way. I want you to think broader. I want you to think of God's grace what he does at salvation, all of it. All right, go back to Ephesians 2.8. So all of that's sort of in tow now. Now we come up upon this, if you want to call it a famous passage, Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Some of you automatically have already expanded your notion of grace, and especially saved. 
What does it mean to be saved? It doesn't just mean some judicial thing. It doesn't just mean a free ticket to heaven. It means a lot. He does a lot for us to save us, like taking us from dead to alive. That's not an accountant's. That's not even necessarily an imputation of righteousness only. You're getting new life. You're born again. That's beyond the scope of justification, which means being made righteous. That's beyond that scope. Ephesians 2.8, it's almost like, um, you know, when a, when a, a judge maybe or, or a governor, I believe the governors or the president of the United States can grant a pardon, you know, until the, 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 the person is let out of prison, it's not really real. For some period of time, the gavel came down, it was done deal, right? But until they're let out, until their life actually changes, and that's even that's a weak approximation of what happens going from literally dead to alive, but it's in the right vein of thinking at least. It's not just someone made a decision and said, you're no longer under the penalty of this thing. Yeah, that's part of it, absolutely. But the, I would argue, a big part, I mean, I don't want to argue with anybody, but to me the bigger part is being regenerated. I don't mean to belittle the cross, so don't get me wrong. That's why I'm very tenderly walking here. Verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Of course not. How could we? We are His workmanship. Now here's where it gets more towards what we learned over the past year even. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for what reason? For a purpose. We spent time on that. You've been predestined, why? For a purpose. Someone that's alive runs around. Does you know? Someone that's alive is alive. Someone that's dead is dead. Dead doesn't do anything, right? Right? I, no, they don't even do that. Although it does happen, I guess. I guess. Oh, stop. Stop being so immature. I'm being medical. You're being immature. Right? I mean, you know, they don't do anything. Made alive. Whew. I'm alive. I'm breathing. I'm breathing. That alone is reason for what? Gratitude. But that was his purpose. And grace, glory. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we, guess what? We would walk in them. Because that's what alive people do. They walk around. They walk. That's good fruit. There you go. Dead people don't walk. Except Bernie. <laughs> Verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles, 
in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. That's an, that echoes of one gospel. In other words, not two or more. In other words, what's Paul saying? He's saying it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. There's only one way, and that's through Jesus Christ. Just, in other words, just because you didn't, weren't given the law doesn't mean there's no way for you to be saved. Otherwise, it'd be an issue of works, and we just read that in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It can't be works. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Again, what do you see, my friends? Ephesians 1 and 2 up here on the board. You must understand God's grace and what it includes at salvation. Everything. Don't start Ephesians this incredible book at 2.8 and forward. That is a massive mistake because all we saw up until Ephesians 2.8 was grace and glory and grace and glory and grace and glory. And by the time we get to Ephesians 2.8, Paul says, don't even think anything has to do with you. And by then you're to totally convinced. There's no confusion. You're like, of course. I mean, come on. Obviously it's God. And God graces us out, the undeserving, to bring glory to himself. I'm cool with that. I mean, all praise and honor are his and his alone, right? Read the book of Revelation. Your 24 elders throwing their crowns at their feet. That's what we're going to do. What else are we going to do? <laughs> like, what are you, you bestowed these things on me? Are you kidding me? I mean, there's so much to be so grateful for. And that's the, that's the killer. With perversions of grace, which result in perverted gospels, the funny thing is, people think it, grace, since it's more accommodating in some perversion, that somehow it's better. But it's actually not. It's actually worse. You're actually missing out on the fullness of all that he's done. By excluding so much. By starting with Ephesians 2.8.9, only focusing on a gavel even. Not focusing on the fact that you were dead and now you're alive. And it's not just some, you know, ink on paper. Okay, well, I'll take this little, you were in debt and now you don't have the debt anymore. 
That's what an accountant does. Do you think that's what God intends you to fall in love with him about because he took something from a, a, a debt column to a credit column? That his gavel did indeed come down, that's the whole of it? And that's what we're supposed to teach everybody? That it has nothing to do with even his love? That it has nothing to do with the fullness of his grace? What are we doing? So by the time you get to Ephesians 2.8, if, if you've read Ephesians 1 forward, you look at Ephesians 2.8 and go, there's no way on earth that's the end of it. Because just the word saved is like this thing ready to burst. I mean, what does it mean to be saved? Well, if I never tell anybody, they're going to think, oh, you got a free ticket to heaven. But when you actually look at the words of our Lord even, what does it mean to be saved? What has God done? We can't do anything. We're born dead in darkness. We can't do anything. How much, is, how much has our Lord done for us? Hooper Bala. Who can say? It's incredible. And this is part of growing up. You say, my goodness, I thought I had it all. But you didn't. And he just keeps blowing your mind. And you're like... How is he blowing? It's like, how is he blowing my mind with the same fact? He saved me. Yeah. By grace, you've been saved through faith. Okay, that seems pretty short. Yeah, but when you just add water, it's like, water of the word. It's like, man, every time I just go back to that well, you mean every time I go back to the gospel well, it just keeps on flowing? Sound like the Bible? The rivers, the waters of life. It's just going to keep giving. That's what heaven's going to be like. That is one of the descriptions we're given prophetically. Think about that. It's not difficult. Man makes things difficult. Why? Because he's got to patch up after himself for peddling a weak gospel, for wanting to hack God's grace up a little bit so he can keep a little bit of his self-life to himself when Jesus said, uh-uh-uh, uh-uh-uh, nope. So then he's stuck with all this scripture that just doesn't fit. It's gotten so bad in today's day and age after a couple hundred years of certain theologies spreading like wildfire, why? Because the flesh loves them, that some people don't even read the Gospels anymore. And it's, wait a minute, what? Whoa, 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 whoa. We just saw that it's the same gospel, Jew or Gentile. So stop trying to pigeonhole Jesus. What are we saying? This is how bad it gets when you hack something up and then that ungodly thing bears the wrong kind of fruit. And if you're trying to go against the grain in far, as far as this is concerned, it's going to get more and more confusing and you will have less and less peace. God is not a God of confusion, but a God of what? Peace. I wrote that to the Corinthians, remember? Is that, is that difficult? No. Oh. So you've got to understand God's grace. I can't believe it. We're out of time. I can't even believe it. I'm in review mode. He has a lot to say. 
That's all I can tell you. He really has a lot to say. And, you know, I guess we'll just have to leave it at least close to this. I'll give you a bit more. You must understand God's grace and what it includes at salvation before you understand the fullness of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. If you don't, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 has this tendency to whittle down into just this forensic, judicial thing. And that's a shame. God is not only just and righteous, He is holy. Too many people focus solely on certain attributes rather than His essence, His person. So in closing, I guess I'll say this. Ephesians 1 and 2 really expounds upon the fullness of God's grace, especially for believers. And it calls out several stumbling blocks, including the ever-present one that existed between Jews and Gentiles at the time. What Paul wanted both generations of people to understand was that while the Jews had the law and the Gentiles didn't, both were made believers and both became one new man. That's Ephesians 2.15. It didn't matter if you had the law or not. The law was just a schoolmaster anyways. This means that there was no special work that a Jewish man could do that a Gentile man couldn't. That would result in salvation. For as Paul wrote all over the New Testament, salvation is through Jesus Christ alone. And with that perspective, I guess we'll come full circle. And that's where we'll end. We started with a balanced statement. We'll end with it. The paradox between God's choosing and election and man's free will ought never be a cause for consternation or confusion rather a perfect time to exercise faith. This is beautiful, my friends. Just learn to take things by faith. If the Bible says this, then believe it. If you can't rationalize it with your human intellect, well, too bad. I mean, I believe, personally, being a rational kind of guy myself, that my greatest joys come when it's pure faith, when, he, when he's literally hacked out any possibility whatsoever for me to rationalize anymore. He's like, and I'm like, oh, I'm still working. Got my little engineer cap on, my nerd, you know, my protractor out. Let me, let me see, let me draw this this way and draw it that. Let me see, I got it, I got it, I got it. And he's like, what are you doing? He's like, and then finally, you know, you give up. Like a lot of people, that's how a lot of people end up, end up being saved, I think. They just finally hit rock bottom, give up, and they get on their knees and they go, it's obvious that I can't do this. But that happens to all of us. You give up and you say, this, I'm not going to try to rationalize. I'm just going to have faith, like the Bible says. And then yeah, life is easy after that, isn't it? I mean, just think about it. If you just say to yourself, whatever I read in here... I'm going to believe it. Okay. Amen. All right. doesn't get any better than that. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of studying your word here this evening. We ask for your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.